Hello, and welcome to Making the Case, a podcast produced by the Tennessee Attorney General's Office. I'm Samantha Fisher, Communications Director and Host. The Tennessee Attorney General's Office is the law firm for the state and manages a wide variety of cases, antitrust, consumer fraud, environmental enforcement, and much more. The work is complex, challenging, sometimes even controversial. If you like history and law, come along with us for Making the Case, We are starting a series of episodes looking back on the highest profile political scandal in the state's history and the critical role of the attorney general at the time, William Leach. So let me take you back to 1979. The governor was Democrat Ray Blanton, and his administration had been under investigation in a cash for clemency scandal, and he was in the final days of his first and final term in office. The name of the incoming Republican governor will be familiar to you, Lamar Alexander. Now, just five days before Blanton was set to leave office, this was January 15th, he announced clemency for 52 inmates. The State Board of Pardons and Paroles had not recommended this. In fact, 23 were serving time for murder. There wasn't time to start an impeachment trial. And what happened next? was an extraordinary intervention that involved political leaders from both parties. Author Keel Hunt wrote about all of this in captivating detail in his book titled Coup. Now joining me are three individuals who were at the center of the coup. Senator Lamar Alexander joining us by phone. And here in the Attorney General's office with me, Tom Ingram, who was chief of staff to Senator Alexander and is head of the Ingram Group, a political consulting business, and Hal Hardin, legendary Nashville attorney, and at the time of this story, U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Tennessee. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start by setting the scene. Tom, perhaps you can tell us what was going on in the political landscape, the context of the time, both in Washington and here in Tennessee. In the wake of, in the wake of Watergate and other things, it was a uh, Democrat environment, uh, Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, who I think had the wisdom to nominate Hal to be the U.S. attorney. There was uh, uh, an outgoing Democrat governor in Tennessee. There were uh, two Democratic uh, senators, I believe, at the time. Um, and uh, you, you had a preponderance of Democrat congressmen. The state legislature was dominated by Democrats in the House and the Senate. Uh, and a young Republican had been elected governor pretty much as a surprise to everyone. So it was a very much a, 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 a the reverse of what we have in Tennessee now where we're dominated by Republicans, we were dominated by Democrats. And so that makes the events of the day all the more remarkable because uh, it really was the Democratic leadership that, that stepped up that day, provoked by Hal, uh, to, to do what they thought was right. And it was, it was not pleasant or, or fun or what anybody wanted to do but uh, they made a very tough call that day. Yeah, it was not celebratory, and I'm looking forward to delving into some of those details. First, Senator Alexander, I want to I want to talk to you and, and have you set the scene for us where you were at that time, just finishing up a successful gubernatorial campaign. Uh, I learned in the research uh, of this interview that you traversed the entire length of the state in your campaign. That's true. The uh, one, one small correction: there, uh, Howard Baker was the United uh, States right. senator at that time, so you had 
it had one statewide office holder, but everything Tom says about it being a Democratic state is absolutely true. The, the Supreme Court, the Attorney General, the U.S. Attorney, the Presidents, the lobbyists, the whole town was, was very Democratic. Uh, if you had to sum up where I was, I was busy, tired, and uh, full of anticipation for the opportunity to become the Tennessee governor. Uh, I had spent literally five years uh, to get to that point. Um, in 1974, I won the Republican nomination but was defeated by Ray Blanton, who called me Nixon's choir boy. That was right after Watergate. And so in order to present a more compelling picture and run a better campaign, uh, with the advice of Tom and my wife, Honey, and Doug Bailey, who was helping me with the campaign, I decided to walk across the state. And I have a big map here in my office at home that shows it. I started in Maryville, where I live, on January 26th. And I walked east to Mountain City, got there about March 1st. There were two feet of snow. Thought, holy smokes, I've got to get all the way to Memphis. And I got there July the 6th. Along the way, I spent the night with 73 families whom I didn't know before. They'd have people over for dinner and for breakfast. And then I'd get up and walk, uh, shake a 1,000 hands a day, put down a white chalk mark, and, and uh, stay with another family. So people laughed at that at first, but it turned out to be a fantastic way for me to get my feet on the ground and and the only way I was able to win the election against a very strong campaign from Jake Butcher, who was the Democratic nominee who had a lot of money to spend. I even carried Nashville, which the Republican for governor had not done. So where I was on the day you mentioned, January 15th, the Monday before, or the 13th, that week before the election and uh, the inauguration in 79, uh, I was the busiest that I would ever be, really. I had formed a cabinet. I was going to a reception in each part of the state to thank people where literally thousands of people would show up and I'd shake their hands. The weather was cold and foggy. We were moving from our home in Green Hills in Nashville into the governor's residence. We had three little kids and Honey was pregnant with our fourth. So uh, on the Monday of that week when we got started, uh, I was busy, tired, and full of anticipation for a swearing in as governor on Saturday. Sure, there was a sense of optimism before Hal Harden called, right? Well, yes, there was. There was also uh, what had happened on Monday, to make it short, is that the assistant attorney general had written an opinion earlier in the month that was made public on Monday saying, I could be sworn in early. Then on Monday night, the governor released 52 prisoners with pardons and commutations, many of whom were rumored to have paid to get their way out of prison. And many Democrats were even calling on me to be sworn in early. Some thought that the release of the opinion is what caused the governor to release those before I could be sworn in and that he had more to release. And that kind of settled down on Tuesday because I couldn't imagine being sworn in on my own initiative. I thought of it as a legislative ceremony. I did not want to take office that way. It didn't seem American for me to do it that way. I didn't think the legislative leaders would want to do it. And on Tuesday, it settled down, and I was, I was 
getting ready to you know, write my inauguration speech on Wednesday morning to make on Saturday. I'm looking forward to talking about the hours ahead of that event, but I want to go back just a little ways here and, and ask Hal Harden, where were you at this time, Hal? You, not long before, had just been named by Carter as the U.S. Attorney for the Middle District, right? Well, there, there was a lot going on in, in, in Nashville and in the, in the Middle District of Tennessee. There, it, it was an incredibly busy time, so much so that a lot of judges and, and outside people commented on Nashville is, is the center for, it seems like, everything. I mean, if you look at the newspapers back in those days, oftentimes the front page would be uh, stories exclusively about what's going on in federal court. It was, it was that many. It was, uh, the town was, was on fire. We had a lot of major cases uh, in the pipeline. And, and active in court, and it was an extremely active uh, office. I, I don't think I took a, a vacation for 40 years. <laughs> I want to ask all of you, approximately how old were you? I take it early 30s when this was all happening? I think we all were. Mm-hmm. 32. I was 30, uh, 38. So, Hal, kick us off here. The public started to understand that, that something odd was going on when a man who had been convicted of murdering his ex-wife and her friend and had been convicted and sentenced just a couple years after going into prison was spotted taking photographs on Capitol Hill. But from what I understand, the investigation had been going on. It had been. It, it, it had actually, actually, it had started uh, parts of it before I became United States Attorney, and it had stopped then it got started back up again. But yes, Roger Humphreys is the fellow you're referring to. He, he, he shot these people 21 times with a single uh, caliber, single chamber bullet uh, gun. Uh, and it, it, uh, it, it caused national news. People were from, everybody knew about this case. Everybody did. And, and his father, Humphreys' father, was the patronage chairman for that county. Blanton had a patronage committee in every county in the state. You were becoming aware that the governor's administration was being investigated. And, and what, what were you hearing? What were you finding out? I have often said this. I, I, I came to the conclusion that everything was for sale in the state of Tennessee, whether you went to license or, or, or liquor license or a real estate license or whatever you wanted, a driver's license. It was for sale. Somebody would sell it to you. It was, it was that corrupt. It was just pervasive. We started gathering evidence of that, and we were also into the, to the bid-rigging cases. Uh, virtually every highway in Tennessee had been rigged. The bids had been rigged, and we were heavy into that. We could, I think 170 people and corporations convicted uh, for that, so it was pretty, pretty massive. So it was a, it was a turbulent time. And the FBI even said, he said, you know, I, I remember when uh, President Reagan got shot. I remember the, the FBI, and they said, you know, there's always a connection with Nashville. Wait and see. And there was. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, my office had declined to uh, prosecute the, the shooter two months earlier for being at the airport with a gun because mm-hmm. that was the policy. It was turned over to Metro. Well, as this is starting to escalate, and you're, you're – 
you know, becoming more aware of these details, but it's, it's kind of a state problem, right? You, there's this barrier, there's this line you're not supposed to cross. For federal crimes, there, there, you know, there is uh, the federal statutes which cover bribery and so forth, even involving the state officials. There were adequate federal laws to, to, to cover this. And, and, and quite frankly, uh, the attorney general at that time did not have the power to, to he has more power now than he, he, did, he did at that time. If the federal government didn't investigate all of this, it wouldn't be investigated. And, and you know, we had the capability to issue subpoenas anywhere in the United States, and, and we had the manpower with the FBI and DEA and so forth. But we, were, we were the only group that could do anything about it. Tom, what was your vantage point on this? I was doing everything I could to help Lamar get ready to, to assume office and together his team and his cabinet uh that particular day uh al called me al called me in the morning and said i need to speak to lamar and i need to speak to him now and so i connected them they talked lamar called me and i went over to uh the shoney's building on hillsborough road where we had a private transition office and during the day bill coke and louis donaldson joined us over there and and Bill Koch uh, was the Deputy Attorney General. He, he, he was a Deputy Attorney General then. Uh, Louis Donaldson was a seasoned lawyer from Memphis who had just retired from his law practice, had accepted Lamar's invitation to be Finance and Administration Commissioner, operates the COO, COO of government. He also coincidentally represented, was in Speaker Nemec Order's personal lawyer. So he was an ideal person to be part of the, the mix at that time. Lamar and Hal talked, and uh, we, we, we spent, Louis, Bill, Louis, and I spent the rest of the day over in Green Hills. Hal and all the Democratic leadership assembled in Governor Wilder's office, I believe, Hal. Bill had a, Bill Leach had rented a room there because okay. his wife was giving birth over at uh, Baptist Hospital, and uh, he was staying there, so he suggested, I suggested he go to my house. And he said, well, I'm closer. He said, I got this room. And so we went down to the Sheraton Hotel on, on Broadway and, and camped out there. Okay. And then there were phone call conversations back and forth during the day until the decision was made at 5 o'clock. You're talking about January 17th. Governor-elect Alexander is supposed to be sworn in on the 20th. And the attorney general who you mentioned, Bill Leach, just a couple days before this phone call starts happening, he's in Washington, D.C., arguing a case before the Supreme Court. So there's a lot of things in motion. Can you take me back to what was going on with our state leaders, the, the House Speaker, uh, Ned McWhorter, the Lieutenant Governor, John Wilder, because they were getting really uncomfortable with what they were hearing was happening with these pardons, but they didn't know what to do about it, right? There really wasn't time to start impeachment proceedings with just days before the end of the term. Well, the first call that I had from a state official was back in the fall, actually. I may have, even, I have December 1st in my mind from Ned McWhorter. And I, I'm in my office, and, and my secretary said, uh, the Speaker of the House wants to talk to you. Uh, what in the world does he want to talk to me about? And I pick up the phone, and he said, uh, General, which I... I'm always opposed to prosecutors being called general because it's a, it's an adjective. It's not a noun. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> noted. And, and, I, and that's the first thing that crossed my mind actually. Mm. And and uh, he said, 
I said, yes, sir. And he said, I just want to tell you, General, that if there's ever anything I can ever do for you, you just let me know I'm here. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And he knew that I knew. And I said, well, thank you very much. And that was the end of the conversation. Well, that was the first call I got from any state official. That was in two or three months before the coup, if you will. And what did you think you could do at that point? I was very frustrated because uh, it looked like Blanton was letting a lot of people out. And I, I even had a, a conversation with Blanton's one-time attorney, Bill Willis, who was a great lawyer here in town, friend of Lamar's, friend of Tom's. Mine. And I, I said, Bill, you know, you, wh what is this man doing? Has he lost his mind? And he said, Hal, look, he said, I can't talk to him. He says he's... Uh, He's not coming to the Capitol anymore. He's uh, drinking vodka in the morning. And by 10 o'clock, he's just incomprehensible. I knew that, that Bill was not going to have any influence in, in doing anything. And it didn't look to me like anybody else was trying to, to do anything to, to influence it. It just looked like to me it was just spinning out of control. It was just getting worse and worse. As a matter of fact, we had, we had uh, the governor's bodyguard on tape talking about how much it's cost and so forth, even how much it would take to get James Earl Ray out. How much? Well, <laughs> that's a little story behind that. We, we're all down in Memphis, and, uh, and his bodyguard is in one room with a TV rigged up, and everybody else is in the other room. And, and they ask him every question in the world. It looked like they got it all made. I mean, he implicated high people in the, in the governor's office and so forth. And uh, we adjourned. We, got out and we had a signal where we could get out and talk to the our informant and the idea came up well let's ask him how much let's just go go for broke ask him how much it costs to get James Earl Ray out went back in there he he was told that and he kind of cleared his throat and says uh, damn that's, that's that's a tough one he says uh, I, I don't know if we could commute him or pardon him he said maybe we could arrange for him to escape for $75,000 so I mean that's just that that gives you an idea as to the mental attitude of wow. what was going so James Earl Ray, who assassinated Martin Luther Martin King Luther Jr. King, so yeah. that tells you that there's nobody who was. And we knew we knew that that some of them had already paid money. What I tried to do is to subpoena those people to the grand jury and, and serve it on the commissioner of corrections. At least those people weren't going to go home. We had a federal hold on them. That's about all we did vis-a-vis -vis trying to stop it. With the U.S. Attorney's hands tied, there was only one thing left to do, and a million ways it could go wrong. Join us for the rest of the story on the next episode of Making the Case. Hal Hardin, Tom Ingram, and Senator Alexander recount the phone call that set the coup in motion. <laughs>